Uh, we've been on a, a series with Joshua, and we're getting towards the end. And I want to ask you a rhetorical question. I want it to be rhetorical, because uh, that way you're not shouting back at me. Because this, the results might be embarrassing. But I want you to think of the worst purchase you've ever made. Like that purchase that came back and bit you over and over again, and it was a bad call, salesman got you, something happened. Um, because we're going to read a story that's a little similar to that. I remember a, a couple of years ago, we, to save money, me and uh, several of my siblings, the Living Way cohort, actually, all of my siblings that go to this church, we got on a family cell phone plan together with Verizon. So we piled all of our numbers on there, and I hold the account. And so I would look at what each person's phone number generated in expense that month. I send it out every month. They pay me. I pay the bill. And for years, I just, I didn't count the numbers. Honestly, I don't know the numbers because it's 2022 and I don't know anyone's cell phone number anymore. Uh, my wife forgot her cell phone to work a couple of years ago and couldn't call me because she didn't know my cell phone number. I feel like as long as there's one worse than me, I'm okay. So I don't know any of their numbers. I just touch a face on my phone. And so all these numbers are there, and I would send this bill out. And then one day I counted them, I'm like seven, seven numbers. There's six of us on this plan. I go back and I look, and for three years, seven numbers are on this plan. So I call up Verizon, and I say, hey, guys, there's an extra line on here. Who is this? And I actually texted all my siblings, and I'm like, does anyone know who this is? And they said, no, we don't know them. So I tell Verizon this, and they go, oh, yeah. That's odd. That must have gotten imported incorrectly when we started your contract. Sorry. And I said, I looked at this. This has cost me like $1,400 over three years. And when you've chosen ministry as your career, $1,400 hurts like the dickens. And so I'm fighting with them. They, I mean, kindly. I'm kind to, to customer service. But I, I was pushing. I was like, I guess I really feel like you should make this right. If it went the other way and you found out I owed you $1,400, there's no way you would say like, oh, it's fine. We'll let it go. They wouldn't listen, and uh, I just had to, to deal with it. They said, well, we'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take it off your plan. You won't pay for it next month. And I was like, thanks, guys. <laughs> the fact is, is that as is, is annoying as it is, I saw the bill every single month. I saw that number, and I never counted them. I never counted to make sure that, it was, that the number was correct of how many lines we had open. So I had been paying for uh, this phone line all this time. And uh, it was my fault, but it still stinks. It's, it put me in a bit of a, puts you in a bit of a mess. And I think that's the way we feel when we spend money on things is we get ourselves into a fine mess. And that's actually what I titled my talk today is the fine mess we're in. When we get ourselves into these fine messes, we often feel that we aren't even worthy of aid because we can expect help when we're a victim, when we're ripped off, but when we're just stupid, when we, when, when we say, we won't say no when we're supposed to say no, when we say yes and we spend money in areas we shouldn't or make a deal that we shouldn't, uh, we get ourselves just into a mess. And it's our own mistake. Joshua makes a very personal and very foolish mistake before the story we read today. You see, there was this city called Gibeon, and Gibeon, they, they, they are, they're spying out, like people are watching what Israel's up to, so they see Jericho smoking wasteland, I, smoking wasteland, and they have a plan. They're going to broker a treaty, but they know that Israel wants the land, so they can't say, well, can you just, just don't kill us, please? They have to come up with something that will make it seem like you can have everything and trick them into a deal. So they come up with a very clever plan. 
The elders of Gibeon come together, and these are Canaanites, these are non-Israelites, and they say, what we're going to do is we're going to trick them into thinking that we don't live here and that we're from really far away and that we heard about Yahweh and we all came to praise him. Can we live as foreigners among you? That's the plan. So they get the worst camels they can find. They get the clothes with all the holes in them. They get shoes that have holes in them. They get bread that's moldy. They pile it in. They get dry wine skins. They stick it to the side of their camels and they ride up like they've just been forever coming over from far away, the deserts of Arabia. And they, they arrive and they come up with this grand story. We are the Gibeonites. We've heard about your God and all the great things he's done. Broker a peace deal with us that we could live among you and worship him and that you will have, uh, that, and you, you will protect us and that we'll have a treaty together. And the text tells us right away, it says, they did not ask God. <laughs> uh, for anyone that's come up with a bad purchase deal, there is a, he did not ask so-and-so in that story somewhere. They did not ask God. So they come up with the deal. They broker the peace. And it's like a day later that someone informs them. Uh, they live on the other side of that hill. They walked like an hour to get here. And when Joshua finds out about this, he's furious. He goes to the Gibeonites and he uh, rebukes them for the lie and tells them that uh, they can remain in the land, but they're going to have a subservient role in sorts to Israel, carrying water and whatnot. Uh, they won't be seen as the same kind of full, I guess what we might call citizenship. Now, often when we make mistakes, we make a purchase we shouldn't make, we hope that it won't come back to bite us. We can just tuck it away. It always comes back to bite us. Always. And it does in this situation too. Bad money practices, uh, stolen luxuries. We do these things thinking, I'll get away with it this time. And it just never, ever seems to work out. For Joshua, this bad deal, it's, a, it's a, the most embarrassing blunder. There's been mistakes made. Akon stealing, and then they're going to go attack I. They don't consult God. It was a mistake. This one's really very squarely on Joshua. He's the one that wrote it. We have a, an impulse when these things happen to cover it up and to try to earn back our honor that we lost. I got myself into this, and I better get myself out of it. And that's a very uh, American concept. And, and in situations, that's true. But what if God jumped into the mess with you, into the bad deal? The fact is, hardly did the ink dry on this treaty before it came back to haunt Joshua. This isn't some long story, some setup where you're, we're going to read in the book of Judges or some book later about how the Gibeonites, uh, the Gibeonite treaty was a problem. It happens immediately. It comes back to haunt him. And yet we find in this story that God was determined to not let Joshua be haunted alone. God is gracious, and he honors those who do the next right thing. So we're going to read Joshua 1.6. This is after the treaty's been brokered, after they've been rebuked, and uh, the next uh, series in the story starts this way. Now Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem, heard about Joshua, uh, or heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, uh, doing to Ai and to its kings what it had done to Jericho and its kings, and, to the and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I, and its men were all good fighters. So Adonai Zedok, king of Jerusalem, appealed to uh, Hebron, or 
uh, Horam, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and with the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces, and they moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. Uh, it says, the Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua uh, in the camp of Gilgal, do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. The bad decision comes back to bite him quickly. Adonai Zadok is the king of yet to be conquered Jerusalem. I know we hear the city and we recognize it immediately. I would say in the terms of, of just cosmology and a God coming into this world, Jerusalem's probably the most important city in human history. But this is pre-conquest. This is back when it is an Amorite city. It won't be conquered for hundreds of years. David will take it long after the days of uh, Joshua. And these southern kings comprise mostly of what will one day be Judah. And so the, if you look at actually how Moses and Joshua broke up the land. It follows along certain trade routes and hills, and these roads would go there. It's very logical. It's not just random. And so people's tribes were in areas together. So this is a group of people that would have been, uh, as they say, royal cities married into each other, blended with each other. And what we find interesting about the history of Canaanites is they're like siblings. You know, siblings fight all the time. But as soon as there's an outsider, you've never seen fidelity like siblings. Like they're poking each other in the eye. They're getting in fights. A few minutes later, they're all together. They've banded and they're digging a grave in the backyard for the babysitter. Like this is siblings connected. Canaanites were this way and the Amorites did not like each other. They would marry in with each other and they would try to broker treaties, but it was tense. It was a very tense family, but they're united in this moment. And they were united in their loyalty to each other. And the fear is great because the thing is, is that if Gibeon is successful in brokering a deal with Israel, they are afraid that this will suddenly splinter off and people will start joining them if it goes well for them. Now, for those of you that lived through the Cold War, you saw that, that as soon as one nation chose a side, the opposing side wanted to make sure life would be hard for them, it, that it would be tense and difficult because they didn't want things to go well if you joined the East or the West. And so it's the same way. They do not want it to go well for them, fearing that other people will join. This is now the largest, this coalition is the largest military threat Israel has seen yet. They've taken a few isolated cities. They have not terrified the Canaanites enough to start joining in coalitions. The siblings aren't quite united yet. And this is now the biggest one. And it happens on the heels of a bad deal. They're unified on the basis of, Jason, of uh, Joshua's bad deal. I almost said Jason's bad deal. Not your fault, Jason. You didn't do this one. You're guilt-free today. The attack on Gibeon is a very calculated effort as an attack on Israel. They want to erode their uh, allies. They want to break down and keep uh, the land hostile towards them. And what we find with Gibeon is that they, uh, because they're a royal city, it means that they, like, they had, like, some of these kings are family members. They would be family members, meaning they're married into each other. This is like World War I when it was just a huge family that got into a fight and they dragged the rest of us all in with them. Same kind of thing. And you got to give them a little bit of credit. 
Because uh, deception and lying aside, they were so confident that Israel would conquer the land, that Yahweh was a greater God than theirs, that they were willing to betray kin to save their own skins. There's a little bit of faith in that, I don't know. Not a lot. But we see as with all of this mess, all of this thing, it's, it's blown up to such an incredible degree that this one treaty has now made it to where Joshua is going to have to send fighting men of Israel into harm's way potentially to face the largest coalition they faced yet, who all got ready for battle, who are armored up, sent their best fighting men, and they will have to face it. And we imagine, couldn't Joshua just say, your treaty was based on lies? So based on lies, we aren't coming. And what we find is that he could do so, but not honorably. Now, I know we're a modern Western culture, so the concept of honor is a little bit foreign to us. But honor is a very critical thing in in much of the world and in the ancient world. It's hard for us to understand in our culture, but think of it this way. Honor is the thing that upheld and secured the entire society. Honor is what motivates a person to do the things they don't want to do. If if you're not going to steal, it's because you do not want to dishonor yourself, your family, and your people. And so God has, for, throughout Scripture and throughout the rest of the world, he convicts the world of sin through honor. That for sake of honor, for keeping honor in the family, for having honor is like this uh, currency that you spend when it comes to brokering deals and, and marriages, the wellness of life. Sin will cost you those things as it taxes you in your honor. Honor was the reason to do right and to not follow an impulse. Honor is what upholds people. And so as God convicts and moves through it, we realize that to break honor for much of the world and for the ancient world in Joshua's day was to reject a moral compass. It's hard for us to understand, but when we hear of our Eastern brothers and sisters in the Christian faith where honor matters to them, we should understand what they're talking about. The honor system is a moral system. It was the good and right thing to be a man of honor. And now he's at a spot to where he's already messed up enough. It comes time to be a man of honor, to honor the commitment he made, uh, to stand up to it, and he's going to have to send men into harm's way. Joshua made this pact alone, but I guess the question is, is that is he going to have to uphold it alone? God has promised security to them up until this point and promised victory to them. So let's continue the story. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, ouch, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them, the coalition, into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and along the... uh, and, excuse me, and cut them down all the way to uh, Azekah and to, Medic- uh, to Makedah. I looked those up how to pronounce that. You're welcome. As they fled before Israel on the road down to Bethor, uh, I just read that over again. Let me see this. No, I'm right. As they, as they fled down, or as they fled before Israel down the road of Bethor and, uh, to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones on them, and more of them died uh, from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. And Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, I want you to listen to this because this is is crazy. Sun stands still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ahalon. Now, uh, so the sun stood still, 
and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on his enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down until a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since that the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord fought for Israel. You know, this starts off with God promises that I will be with you. And it's, it's a repeat. It's an echo of things that God has said over and over again. Don't be afraid. Go. I'll be with you. They can't withstand you. He says it now because it's very critical. And this is a moment when Joshua needs to hear it. Because you kind of get this idea of God's with me when things, when I've set it up well, but now that I've backed myself into a corner, are you still with me? And this promise is to say in effect, yes, even now. God was with him when things were going well, but what about now that he's got himself into this fine mess? And he needs this assurance. Yes, Joshua, I'm still with you. He needed it because this is clearly a question in his heart, because it's always the question in ours, that when I've screwed up and I've punched my ticket and I'm in the bed that I made, will the Lord really deliver me now? What we find is that God didn't abandon him. God doesn't abandon us. Joshua honored his agreement, and God marches on to fight with him right next to him after abject failure because Joshua has chosen to do the right thing to do the next right thing. And God's miraculous delivery is amazing. Hailstorms uh, first, that there was some sort of volcanic eruption nearby to where as the stones are falling, God killed more of them with the stones than Israel killed with their army. And we find this amazing thing that despite the fact that it's a bad deal, that detail is recorded in the book of Joshua for us to know that God became the guarantor of a bad deal. That he is the one who is upholding the terms the most to defend Gibeon and its deceitful deals, to uphold Israel's bad treaty. This is an incredible picture of grace of God bailing out a nation from its foolishness. And we get to that miracle about the sun. Now, I've read about this. I have been spending all week reading about this because I found it fascinating the different theories people had. It's not uncommon that people will say that this is, a, because it's, the miracle takes place in Hebrew poetic script, you'll notice that, that it's sun and moon stay still. Even when you look at it on there, you can tell by the stanzas that it's, po- it's poetry. They say that it's a poetic description of an of a, uh, eclipse. Not an eclipse, but of a solar event where you can see the sun and the moon in the same position at the same time during the day. That happens almost exclusively on the 14th day if you're on the same kind of calendar Canaanites had. It's this long thing where basically they say it was a poetic thing where he was asking God, give them a celestial sign that scares the wits out of them. Um, And people say this not because they doubt that God could not do it, but because if it is the way that it reads, it is the biggest miracle since creation. Because it reads that the entire cosmos stopped, froze in place, gravity kept working. The clock stopped and we all didn't die for 24 hours. And then it just miraculously picks back up. It would be an interruption to where from creation, God created this perfectly beautiful working machine and then just stops it, takes a creation pause till Israel's avenged itself against its enemies based on a bad deal, and then lets it keep going. Only a creator could do such a thing. And I'll be honest with you, after all the reading, I take the classical interpretation. Because when it says that the sun stood still for an entire day, that's where the commentators that say that it's poetry have a hard time trying to describe that, because that's not poetry. 
The book of Jashar is also being used because the comment, the person who's writing this is saying, I know what I just told you sounds insane. You read the book of Jashar, it's lost. We don't have that book anymore. It's some old ancient Hebrew history book that's gone. But apparently in the book of Jashar, it said, it stayed bright for a really long time one time. I take the classical interpretation because I really do believe this is a time when God once again does something completely unfathomable and shows himself mighty on his people's behalf. It would take a creator to do this. The person who has the keys to creation could do such a thing. And what it, what it reveals in such a powerful way is God does not put in a half effort when we've put in such a total effort to destroy ourselves. He arrives in complete and full strength. That this is cosmologically the biggest miracle in the Bible apart from creation, and it happens when God is pouring out grace to save people from a stupid deal they should have asked him about. No begrudging nature about it. Did you know that Tom Peterson, the furniture guy, he blew all of his money? Remember the guy that, it's Tom Peterson. Does anyone remember those ads on TV? Sorry to my cousin from Seattle who's not from Portland and didn't see it. Um, but in these ads, he, he would say, I'm Tom Peterson. Always ended that way. And then he would end with that. And then he, he lost all of his money. His wife had separate money. So there, there's a healthy marriage for you. Somehow she had her own money and she bailed him out and basically bought a portion of his business. From then on out, it ended with him all happy as usual. I'm Tom Peterson. And I swear she sounded angry. She'd go, and Gloria's too, like she was mad. Have you guys heard the ad? I'm Tom Peterson, and Gloria's too. I bailed him out. It's not all him. But this isn't God bailing someone out that way. Not begrudgingly, not withholding anything. This is him unleashing an incredible miracle. In the terms of heavenly miracles, rising the Messiah, sure, that's greater. In terms of cosmological miracle, can you think of anything crazier than the clock that started at creation pausing for 24 hours? All miracles in Scripture are signs to greater realities. God doesn't do them just to do them. And I think, what is a greater symbol of the gospel? The ultimate promise of God than God shifting the cosmos to save people from their own bad deal, their own bad choices. God just seems to do the biggest miracles when we least deserve them. Because that moment, the point is clear that he's the one who saves. We don't earn these miracles. God did a lot of miracles. Jericho is a miracle. The ways that, that these greater armies panic before them, the, the, the miracle of fear of God in those battles is a miracle. But when Israel deserved it so little, he does the biggest one. Maybe need, we, we, we really do need miracles most when we deserve them the least. After the statement of the book of Jashar, he ends with saying uh, this, there's never been a day like it before or since. And you would think that he's going to say when the earth stood still. But listen to this. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. What's amazing is the, whoever wrote this book, it was, it was like, it, Joshua's death is in it, so the chances probably wasn't Joshua. They might have used some of his resources. But whoever wrote this, what they found amazing isn't that God could do that. 
that God could stop the cosmos for a moment. They were amazed that God would listen to someone, listening to a man like this. It's, it's, it's sure amazing enough that the sun and moon stopped in the book of Jashar for that, but what sets it apart is an incredible day is that God would stoop and listen to a human being like this to be so merciful and to listen to such a mortal request. At the time of this book's composure, this miracle has no parallel in that sense of God listening to man. But in the age of Jesus, there are many stories with parallels to it. Of all the miracles in Joshua, this one points most to the gospel. God, hear my request. I've made a complete mess. I've gotten myself into trouble that I deserve. Do something only you can do to deliver me. I was reading the book of Job recently because I guess I felt like depressing myself. But uh, there's something that he said that I thought was really amazing. Job expresses the pains of being immortal and not being able to be heard before an immortal God. That God is so much greater. He, he's, he's miraculous. Who can fathom? Who can, who can search his thoughts? He goes on forever about this, and he, he summarizes his thoughts with this. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. And look at this. Listen the way he wishes for Jesus here. Thousands of years before him, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more than I would speak without fear of him. But as it stands now, I cannot. To have Jesus in our lives is to have a way forward when we have found ourselves in the fine mess that we're in. To have our need heard that God would listen to a mortal person and deliver them. To receive mercy. We have a way forward to do the next right thing and to be delivered by God. Faith is knowing that God is with you when you clean up your mess. And this is more than a picture of salvation, the initial time that God delivers us from our mess. This passage is a picture of God leading your household out of financial debt. It's a picture of God leading your marriage from the brink of divorce. It's a picture of God reinventing how you parent, although you've already made mistakes teaching you how to lead, though you've already made mistakes, how to speak mercifully to those around you, though you've already set up and punched the ticket to horrible habits. We need a Savior who does the unbelievable for the undeserving. And in Jesus, we have that. That though at the time Joshua was written, there wasn't many days when God listened to men in such a way. God does listen to us today through Christ who's with us. We get to have the wish of Job, something he wanted to have. We have it. Let Christ mediate between you and the Father, between you and God in heaven, the one whom you have uh, earned your seat of failure in front of. And live out, uh, live out the honor that God puts on you to do the next right thing, to be a person of honor. Be courageous. Knowing God remains faithful to you, even though your path to this problem has been imperfect, that you've screwed up. Don't say to yourself, you got yourself here, so you alone have to get yourself out, because God goes with you. 
he helps those who pot their own problems, who are already so far in. He bails us out of our bad deals, and he is highly willing to do miracles for those that don't deserve it. In our darkest moments, when we least, least need them, he does the most incredible things in our lives. If we stop service right now and I said, let's have a testimony, I want you to tell me when God did the greatest thing in your life, it, we would not hear many stories of times where we in this room were done just fasting or we just donated all of our money. We did these great things. We would hear story after story about at our worst, at our most embarrassing, at the moments when we didn't deserve it, that seems to be when God does the craziest thing. That it's in the defense of Gibeonites people they should have never brokered a deal with and the bad deal that bit them immediately, that God does his most amazing things. Don't tell yourself you're alone because God goes with you even into the fine mess you've gotten yourself into. I think if God was here, he would say, rise up. Let me lead you in defeating the wicked southern kings of your life. I'm gonna pray for us, Lord, today. Give us courage that we, that though we discount ourselves and we, we say we have nothing to stand on, we aren't victims in this. We are the aggressors. We're the ones that made the mistake. We're the ones that failed. We made this thing the way it is. Lord, let us remember this story today, this picture today, that into those situations we're pursued by God. That when we need miracles the most is often when we deserve them the least. Lord, I pray for the ways that we have gotten ourselves into financial binds, relationship binds. Lord, though our character has failed in the past, you are strong in spite of it. God, I pray that we could shake off the fear that's frozen us into position, that we could take on some courage and we could say, Lord, we're with you. Help us to do the next right thing. Help us to take the next step as you lead us. Lord, we have faith that we will see you come through that incredible, miraculous delivery to come through in our lives. Lord, help us to shake off the confidence that our own failures have taken from us and put on the confidence that faith is simply knowing that you are with us right now in the middle of this mess. Lord, we give these situations to you that push us into a corner forward to seeing your deliverance in front of us. Let us be changed in your presence today. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.